The Devil's Interval. Hey Rockers, welcome back to Extra Credit, the Rock You Podcast. I'm your co-host Seth Hinckley, and I'm sitting here with the James Hetfield to my Lars Ulrich, the man, <laughs> the myth, the legend, Matt Black. That's one I hadn't thought of. How you doing, Seth? I'm doing good, man. How are you? I'm doing fine, thanks. Happy to be back. Yeah. And we're coming up on Halloween. And I hope that all you guys have your your costumes ready and you know what you're doing for trick-or-treat and stuff. And we're going to help you get ready today for Halloween by doing what? What are we doing today? Our top five spookiest songs. Oh, awesome. So before I forget... Looking forward to this one. Yeah, me too. But before I forget, what are you wearing today, Matt? Well, I'm starting to go... I'm starting to recycle some of my options from season one here. Uh, Today I'm wearing my cake shirt. I love the shirt. I love the song I'm going to reference when I talk about it. Sweet. And I'm sporting my Metallica shirt. You'll see why here in a few minutes. All right. I bet I will. So, for spooky songs, what were your criteria? What What do you think is spooky? What is is this? Are these songs going to scare me? Well, Seth, I'm glad you asked. I had to think about this one a little bit because we chose the adjective spooky. We could have gone with scary. We could have gone with creepy. But we went with spooky. Yeah. So uh, there was some interpretation there. I have to say that, and we might be talking about this on a future episode too, that personally, scary is not something that really happens to me very much. Like, I like horror movies, but they don't scare me. Okay. So I had a hard time, like, what's what's going to scare me? And what scares me is creepy. I, I like creepy. <laughs> so I went with things. I mean, I did, I did go with things. There's, I have a couple choices that you'll see that are just objectively meant to be scary and are scary, and I'm, we'll talk about why. But most of the stuff... Uh, that I went with was stuff I would put more in the more in the category of creepy than scary, but to me, spooky, kind of somewhere in the middle. What about okay. you? So for me, I guess the the song either had to have a spooky or a Halloween or a horror vibe to it, and it had to be a song where the music was quality and not an afterthought to the spooky or scary or horror idea of it. Yeah, I agree with you there. The, the music had to fit the theme. But sometimes I think the scariest stuff is the ambiguous stuff. The spookiest stuff is when you've got lyrics and music that don't quite match, and it unsettles oh, you. Yeah. So uh, there no, might I, be one example of that. I, I agree yeah. with you on that. Yeah. What, I, what I was saying was the music had to be good. It couldn't be oh, yeah. campy. Nah, or, totally with you on that. Yeah, or, or totally just a you. bad tune that you were trying to put a spooky idea around. Never even occurred to me to pick a bad song just because it was scary. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. All right. Who's going first? Up to you. All right. Well, you go first. All right. I'll start. And uh, even though I, even though I just, you know, got through saying I really like uh, ambiguous narrators and untrustworthy narrators and uh, unsympathetic narrators and spooky and creepy things, I'm starting off with something that's just so straight up front that there's no, there's really no debating it. And I'd be, I'd be surprised if it's not on your list. Also. Okay. This is a song that Rob Halford from Judas Priest called the scariest song of all time. Okay. Is it on your list too? I don't know. Okay. We'll see. And it's Black Sabbath by Black Sabbath. Ah, good choice. Okay. Not on my list. Okay. Good choice. Well, let me tell you some things about the song. First of all, the song makes heavy use of an interval, a very important musical interval that you should know called a tritone. This mm-hmm. has been known by lots of names over the years. Um, it's simply a flatted fifth. So it's the note between the fourth and the fifth. And it was known as the Devil's Interval in yeah. Renaissance yeah. times or maybe before. Anyway, 
uh, very many hundreds of years ago. It was known as the Devil's Interval, and it was considered impure. It was considered very spooky. I will say that a lot of this is the way our ears hear it as Westerners. This is not a universal thing. Most of the way we we approach major and minor keys and tonality is stuff that we learn from culture. It's not necessarily intrinsic. But there are interesting physical relationships between frequencies that make them hit our ears in different ways. This was considered a dissonant frequency. It's gotten into more use, but it's generally spooky. So let me demonstrate a tritone. So this is a C. Now, the interval of, of perfect fourth is an F. And that sounds pretty nice, pretty harmonious. That's If you go backwards, that's actually the plagal cadence which we talked about last season. Right. The interval to G is a perfect fifth, or a fifth. C. That's a very cheerful interval. Right. But if you play the F sharp between F and G, this is what you get. Ooh. You hear that tritone? That's the devil's interval. It feels bad. It feels it feels it feels unsettling. And <coughs> something you should know about Black Sabbath. I mean, listen, I love Black Sabbath, and they're no que- no question they are heavy metal pioneers, and they totally own that role. But becoming a band that focused on the occult was a conscious choice to make more money. So <laughs> Black Sabbath was known as the Polka Tuck Blues Band. Then they changed oh, their yeah. name to Earth. But then there was another band called Earth, and they kept getting booked into the wrong festivals. And they rehearsed in a, and they were they were playing for free T-shirts. I mean, they weren't making any money at all. They were rehearsing in a studio space or a rehearsal space across the street from a movie theater. And the guys from Black Sabbath, Geezer Butler and Ozzy Osbourne and Tommy Iommi and the other guy, <laughs> I can't remember the drummer, noticed that all these people were lining up to see a movie called. Black Sabbath, uh, starring Boris Karloff. Yeah. And they got the idea that there's a lot of money in people wanting to be scared and in the occult, in the, in the metaphysical. And so they very intentionally wrote a song. I think Geezer Butler was the principal writer of the song. They very intentionally wrote a song using tritones that was extremely eerie, and they leaned into it so much that they actually na- renamed the band after the song. Moved on to music history. Moved on to music history. So Black Sabbath by Black Sabbath is my number five choice for scariest song. What's your number five? Okay, so my number five is a classic spooky song, but maybe not by who you think it would be by. It's I Put a Spell on You by Credence Clearwater Revival. I always have a hard time saying Credence Clearwater Revival. (laughs) They should have thought of that. Well, everybody calls them CCR. Or Credence. uh, Or Credence. And I wanted to put a classic spooky song on my list and Monster Mash by Bobby Boris Pickett <laughs> is the usual choice. And that would have been easy, but I went with this one. And even though the original by Screamin' Jay Hawkins is great, it's super campy. And the singing isn't done as singing, it's more done as screaming, and the music isn't great. But the CCR version, it's totally a better song all the way around, from the musicianship to the singing. And just the spookiness of it. It's not campy. It actually is a little spooky. John Fogarty and the band do a really good job with that. And the guitar riff in the middle of the song is really good. I'm not sure it's it's the if it's played with a wah-wah pedal or a slide or how he got that sound. To listen. But that's a really that's a really good spooky tune with, with the guitar sound. Overall, I think this is the best version of that classic tune. So that's my number five. What's your number four? Okay, so now we get into what I was talking about before, a little personal 
personal trivia. Um, some people at Rock, you know that in my previous life, I was actually a, a wildlife researcher and an environmental educator. What? Yes, it's true. And I you spent, lived in a forest? <laughs> I, all kinds of places. And I, I lived with uh, in places where I lived in tents. I lived in cabins with no electricity or phones. I lived in places where there were grizzly bears and mountain lions and wolves, which are not at all dangerous. But a lot of times people would say, <laughs> you know, how do you de- deal with living with all these dangerous animals? And my answer was always the same. The most dangerous animal in the woods walks on two feet. I'm much more spooked yeah. out by people than I am by any of those other things. And my next four are all going to reflect that. And my number four is just a, a really good piece of musicianship. And it is Marilyn Manson's cover of Sweet Dreams Are Made of This by the Eurythmics. Ah. You, or I think it's just Eurythmics. Yeah. Anyway, that song is creepy to begin with. The original is creepy to begin with, but it doesn't sound so creepy. It doesn't spook you out. Not the original, no. Well, the lyrics are the lyrics should be. Some of them the want lyrics, to use yes, you. But the music, some of them want no, to abuse you. Right, exactly. It's kind of 80s well, dance poppy. Marilyn Manson leans into it a bit more, puts this very slows it way down, puts this very heavy guitar riff using tritones, very heavy yeah. guitar riff on it. And he changes a few of the lyrics. They're hard to hear, but in the solos and the bridges, he's actually saying, I want to abuse you. Uh-oh. Instead of some of them, in, in other words, it's, not, it's no longer third person. He's leaning into the role. Yeah. And it's just, he just did such a good job of interpreting the song and making it sound more like what the interpretation of lyrics could have been originally if Make it Eurythmics like had, had leaned in. Scary Marilyn Manson it, music. It was, it's pretty scary music. And it brings out the full spookiness of the lyrics that were there already. It does. So, Sweet dreams are made of this by Marilyn Manson's cover, and I love I love covers that change the way you think of the song. Yeah, that's a good one. Those are usually the best covers. Yeah, we talked of, about this most of the time. Yeah, we have an. Episode I want to say episode that. three or five or something, something <laughs> of like last that. season. Back in last season. <laughs> My number four is "Every Day Is Halloween" by Ministry from 1984. If you guys don't know who Ministry is, they're kind of a hardcore industrial dance band. I guess it's it's industrial music. This tune is very 80s, and it's very goth. And the lead vocal by Al Jorgensen is a little creepy. It was released as the B-side of All Day back in 1984. It's just got this full-on goth vibe. And uh, oddly enough, some really good scratch work from an early 80s band that wasn't a rap group. Hmm. Uh, and if you watch the video that's up on YouTube, it's a bunch of these old cartoons from, I don't know, the thirties or the forties in black and white that are just cartoon devils and demons dancing along to the vibe of the tune. If you've listened to this, like the clip that we have here and you were around in the eighties and went to a few dance clubs, uh, you'll, (laughs) you'll, you'll get the, the vibe of this song. It's actually when I hadn't listened to it in a long time until we brought up the spooky songs and I pulled it up and I was like, Oh yeah, I remember hearing this, you know, all the time when we went out to the underage dance clubs in Houston and ministry was always pumping through the sound system. So a little nostalgia for me on my number four. What's your number three? Okay, ready for my number three? I'm going to amp up the creepiness even a little bit more now. Okay. So I noticed when I was doing, uh, you know, looking through what songs I wanted to use for this episode, I noticed there are just a lot of bands that are just good at creepy. And, uh, you know, sometimes I don't really listen to the lyrics that carefully when I'm listening to music. And some bands that just kept coming back for me were, I'm sorry, I'm just flipping through here, uh, The Cure. They are really good at creepy textures. They've got Um, some creepy stuff, yeah. 
Butthole surfers, when they want to be creepy, can be super creepy. And in fact, the uh, they have one album, Locust Abortion Technician, which is just creepy all over the place. Morrissey can be really creepy, <clears throat> and the Smiths. Uh, creepy you know, and depressing. Depressing, too. Well, we'll get to that later, maybe. But <laughs> they're okay. just bands that do it really well. And a band that does creepy really well is Radiohead. And yeah. I always find, you know, Radiohead songs are always a little unsettling. The narratives are always a little ambiguous. So I was thinking, what radio song am I going to... Am I going to use or am I going to use a Radiohead song? Did I just say radio song? I don't think radio that. song. Radio, Radiohead song. That's REM. Anyway, but we won't go there. <laughs> so I was looking into my Radiohead playlist here, and one of the songs that I've always found very beautiful but very spooky is a song called "Knives Out," but okay. I never listened to the lyrics. Well. And you went and looked them I up. I went and, you and got listened to them and out. worked them up. Now I wish I hadn't. So, <laughs> so there aren't a lot of lyrics, but here's a here's a small selection. I want you to know he's not coming back. Look into my eyes. I'm not coming back. So knives out. Catch the mouse. Don't look down. Shove it in your mouth. If you'd been a dog, they would have drowned you at birth. Cook him up. Squash his head. Put him in the pot. I want you to know he's not coming back. And there's a lot more like that. That's really yeah. weird. <laughs> it's really weird, and it fits the music. I mean, I already knew it was creepy without knowing that. Right. Um, so I looked it up, and sure enough, one of the things they're writing the song about is cannibals. Cannibalism. Uh. And I was like, okay, that was not, I did not see that one coming. But that was one of the things they were writing about. The song, actually, they st- first started writing the song because they were trying to sound like a Smith song. And they actually played it for Johnny Marr, and he was very flattered because they did a good job capturing it. But, I mean, Tom York's voice can already be very eerie and haunting. The music is kind of all over the place and textured, but but you can't really get a hold on it. And Tom York also said, he said it was about cannibalism, but also about the idea of a businessman walking out on his wife and kids and never coming back. And it's like, well, never coming back because he's dead or because or he's what? the cannibal or what? Anyway, he got sick from cannibalism? Yeah, I don't know. It's a super creepy song, and it, it was a surprise entry on my list. It comes in at number three. Yeah. Knives Out by Radiohead. I don't know the song, and now I don't want to go listen to it. <laughs> don't Just don't read the lyrics. Listen to the song, but just to try to tune out with the actual Tune out lyrics. what they're actually saying. Yeah. Okay. All right, my number three... And I, I could have gone, my number three is a Metallica song. And when you think of creepy Metallica songs, lots of people think of Inner Sandman. Oh, that's what I thought you were going with. But I'm not oh, going okay. with Inner Sandman because this one's a little more creepy, scary. I'm going with One. Uh, Interesting. Good choice. Yeah. I think that One holds the crown for spooky songs with Metallica. It was the third single off of their album, And Justice for All. And it's the story of a World War I soldier who is wounded so that he's still alive, but he can't move or communicate. And the song is all about the hell that this man is going through. He can't talk to anyone, and he just wants to die. The video that the band uses, uh, they use uh, scenes from the 1971 anti-war movie, Johnny Got His Gun, because the song and the movie have similar themes. The video for this got really popular on MTV, and so much so that the band was having to pay a, a ton of royalties to the people that owned the movie, Johnny Got His Gun. So instead of keeping paying all these royalties, the band just bought the rights to the movie <laughs> so that they didn't have to pay royalties on, the, on the, the video that they kept showing on MTV. The music on this song is amazing. The guitar solos it is, uh, yeah. by Kirk Hammett are just absolutely wonderful. Lars Ulrich with the 
the drums sounding like gunfire. I mean, just just it's a really amazing song. If you just took the words out of it and just had the music in it, you could listen to that as an instrumental all day long. But the words with it just make it creepy and spooky and scary and weird and something that you don't really like to think about a lot. So that's my number three. Cool. It's a good song. Yeah. Never thought of it as creepy, but I'll go back and have a listen. Watch the video too. If you watch the video along, that adds 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 so much to it. Yeah. Ready for my number two? Hit me. I'm wearing the cake shirt. Okay. (laughs) Scary cake. Scary cake. Uh, Cake's always a bit scary, right? (laughs) No. All right. Well, sometimes. Anyway. It's scary when it ends up ends up at the waistline. But Most, outside of that, yeah, there you go. Most people uh, know the Dolly Parton song "Jolene." Yes, a classic country song and covered by the White Stripes, which brought it to a rock audience. And I have always found the song unsettling. I don't think this is a common interpretation, but I hear a lot of menace in the song "Dolly Parton," and she told said she said this was about a real event where yeah. a, a, a bank teller was flirting with her husband. I hear in her character talking to Jolene, the pretty girl that her husband is obsessed with, I hear a threat, but it's pretty subtle in the original song. Now, Cake wrote a song called Jolene, which is not a cover of the Dolly Parton song. The only thing it shares, although the chord progression is similar, the only thing it shares is the title. Okay. But it takes it to a whole nother level. (laughs) And it is a very creepy song. It could be interpreted a lot of ways. Once again, it's an ambiguous ambiguous song. Is it one person or two narrating the song? Are the events in the song the person's fantasy or is he really acting out, acting out on his, acting his fantasy out? Right. Um, But it's, it seems to me to be about Jolene, a young woman who's attractive. The narrator is obsessed with her. And the lyrics themselves aren't threatening but they carry a hidden menace, and okay. the music re- reaches a crescendo at the end, which, whether it's in his mind or not, there's clearly something very chaotic happening. Right. And John McRae is shouting over the guitar solos that are like all, the, there are all kinds of things going on, guitar and trumpet and everything. He's shouting, get down, get down! <laughs> and you just don't know what's going on in this guy's mind or in his life, but it's super creepy, super spooky. And I've always linked it to... The Dolly Parton song, which just, again, adds a whole other level. Is it the husband? Is it another yeah. person? Is it Dolly coming to exact her revenge? I just don't know, but it scares me. <laughs> <laughs> Have you heard the slowed yes, down Yes, I love version? the slowed down version. I love that uh, He's talking about the, the original, original Dolly Parton. Yeah, I yeah, agree. Yeah, the original it's- Dolly Parton Jolene. If you haven't heard the version that they drop it from... Uh, it's it's almost half. I mean, it's re- you can really hear the guitar work nicely, and her yeah. voice goes way down low, and it just it's much scarier down there. Yeah, the yeah. the guitar work is just amazing. Yeah, and the way that when you slow it down, it it's actually it takes it from being a really quick kind of bright song to being a little bit more spooky but i like it better with the slowed down version yeah i do too well that could be why i think of the song as a little spooky because i i prefer the slowed down version it might have wormed its way into my brain somehow yeah moving on to my number two this one just goes spooky because it's just so ridiculously weird and drug induced my number two is the end by the doors it's on their 1967 self-titled debut record and it started out as a breakup song written by Jim Morrison about his ex-girlfriend, this woman named Mary Werbelow. But the Doors had worked this song so much playing at the Whiskey A Go-Go 
they had played it so many times live that when it came time to record it, it was almost 12 minutes long. So the music's got this really spooky vibe, so much so that Francis Ford Coppola used the song in Apocalypse Now to create the weird spooky vibe that he wanted during that film. There's a spoken word section that begins about halfway through the song. It's really dark. It has some elements of Oedipus Rex. Uh, That's because Jim Morrison had performed that play uh, as a student at Florida State University. The song was recorded live. There are no overdubs. They did it in only two takes. And allegedly, the second take is the one that's on the record. It's trippy, it's scary, it's spooky, it's weird. And Morrison alledly was on LSD for the entire recording sessions. (laughs) And if you listen to his voice, (laughs) you can probably understand that that's probably true. Scary, spooky, trippy, weird. Yeah, the end by the doors. If you've got, uh, I think it's 11 minutes and 41 seconds to be weirded out, that's where you need to go. (laughs) Wow. Okay, you ready for my number one? I'm ready for your number Hold one. Hold on, I'm just looking up how long it is. I don't know. I I don't know if we if you're going to get to my number one, but I was thinking if we were going to have the same song, that it would be the number one song. But I'm we'll see. Almost positive it's not going to be. I thought you'd have Black Sabbath on yours. I ah, was wrong about that. Yeah. All right, my number one is another is another long song, not as long as the end, about seven minutes long. It's uncomfortable for me to listen to the whole song. Uh, it's it's it spooks me out a bit too much. Okay. It has all the things that I like in a spooky song. An ambiguous narration. You don't, Scary narrator. You don't know if it's just in the guy's head or if it's something that's really happening. Lyrics that could go either way. Clearly someone who is obsessed with someone else. Okay. An outpouring of some feeling in the music that is is or isn't expressed in the lyrics, depending on which part of the section you're, or which section of the song you're listening to. Okay. And it's, uh, it's a fairly less well-known track by a famous artist. It's I Want You by Elvis Costello and the Attractions. You know that one? No. That's, that's out of left as, field for me. Yeah, okay. So in... Spooky as Hades. Yes. In, in, <laughs> in the song, <laughs> it starts out in a major key with a strummed acoustic guitar and a very pleasant melody. Uh, it sounds like a, a traditional love song. And then all of a sudden, about a minute in, you get this reverby, tremolo-y, dis- dissonant guitar hit. Okay. And everything changes. It's about a guy who's obsessed with a woman, clearly. And it's about, it, it seems from the lyrics that he is in a relationship with her, but he's very jealous of her. And he is unable to control himself. And it's, again, not really sure. You can't really tell if he's done anything, if he's going to do anything, if he's just thinking about doing things, if he right. can't, can't help himself from thinking about doing things. But all I can say is if you listen to the song, the combination of the the very spooky music and the very, it's really, and I, I have to say, the song is really made by Elvis Costello's vocal delivery. Okay. He is like a Shakespearean actor in this in this song. He is really selling it. Yeah. Um, I didn't even, I was too scared to look up what he wrote the song about. So. <laughs> I Want You by Elvis Costello and the Attractions. If you want to scare Matt, just put the song on. I will turn it off or run away. (laughs) All right, you ready for my number one? I am ready. When most people think of a spooky song that's a really awesome tune, this is the one they think of. Most of the time, I usually go with stuff that's not total mainstream, but I kind of had to with this one. It's Thriller by Michael Jackson. I figured you might go there. (laughs) 
you know, Thriller is the quintessential spooky song, and it's got its own short spooky film to go with it. I mean, how can you not love that Michael Jackson got horror movie superstar Vincent Price to do the spoken word part on the record? And Vincent Price only needed two takes to get that spoken word part recorded. Well, he's a... He's, He's a, a consummate professional. Yeah, amazing guy. <laughs> he just tossed those cue cards over his shoulder and Mike dropped and walked out, and probably. walked out. That's what he does. <laughs> the song was produced by Quincy Jones. I mean, who's a better producer than Quincy Jones in, the, in that arena? Uh, and the video was directed by John Landis, the guy that did Animal House, Blues Brothers, which we've talked about before. Many great movies. Yeah. Yeah. And An American Werewolf in London. which was his horror film deal, which was the reason why Michael went after John Landis to do the video. Interesting. Did not know that. So the 13-minute video that they did as a short film actually brought more respect to the form of music video because it was actually a well-told story. The dance moves and the costumes and everything that went into it were great. That 13-minute video is actually the best-selling videotape. Yes, kids, that's that stuff that you don't watch anymore. It's actually the best-selling videotape of all time. Seriously? Seriously. That's very cool. Yeah. I didn't even know it was sold as a standalone tape. Yeah, it yeah. was they cool. put it out as a standalone yeah. film that you could yeah. buy. I knew people that had it. They they were like, "Oh my gosh, we got to go out and get the thriller video." Because they they would show the shorter version on MTV and the longer version sometimes too. Every once in yeah. a while they'd show the longer yeah. version. But if you wanted to watch that long version, you either right. had to hit it really well with MTV or you had to buy the videotape. And evidently a bunch of people bought that videotape. The song itself sold more than four million physical copies worldwide. And so far, at least at the last count that they had on Wikipedia, was that uh, it had over 10 million downloads. <laughs> The famous dance is that's in that video, the, the, the thriller cre- dance, yeah, the thriller dance with yeah. the creepy zombie moves. Yeah. Everybody copied that, and this is also the video where they introduced Michael's signature red jacket with the with the the V with on the back, the, with the V yeah. on the back, and all the zippers yeah. and stuff that everybody yeah. was trying to to wear in the eighties. And the other cool thing is when they have the howls on the song, the sound engineer put his dog in a barn overnight oh, and was hoping that the dog would howl and the dog never did. It was a great Dane. And he oh was like, goodness. when he howls, it's amazing, yeah. but I can't make him howl. So Michael Jackson actually does the howls wow. on the song, which That's is very cool. Yeah. Which is amazing. That's very cool. You, you can't beat Michael Jackson and a number one song and a number one video and just all the cool stuff that went with it. That's, cool song. That's why it's my number one. So honorable mentions. Oh, shoot. Right. We got a lot of honorable mentions. I got a bunch. You got a bunch? Yeah. You want to go first? I'll go first. Okay. Okay. I'm, I'm kind of taking a page out of your rule book, <laughs> trying not to go, go back and cover ground that we've already covered. And I would have put this song on the list, but it was my number one in our Hidden Gems episode. It's Witch Hunt by Rush. Yeah. Talk about spooky, creepy, weird sounding. I mean- this could have been the soundtrack to the part in the Frankenstein movie where the villagers go after Frankenstein with the fire. I mean, this is just an amazing song. There's a song by Judas Priest called The Sentinel that I'm not sure many people know about. It's on Defenders of the Faith from 1984. It's a story song about this lone figure 
who is sworn to avenge and condemned to hell. He's the sentinel. It's just a, a crazy story with Rob Halford screaming out the lyrics, so that makes it extra spooky. A newer song that I kind of like that's a little spooky is uh, Back from the Dead by Hailstorm. If you haven't heard Hailstorm, they're a really good heavy metal band led by Lizzie Hale, who's a good guitarist and a really good singer. Uh, And she really tears it up in this song about rising from the dead. So that's always a good one. I've got a song from Iron Maiden, and I know everybody thinks it's going to be Number of the Beast. But I actually think Two Minutes to Midnight is a little more spooky and a little more creepy and weird if you really listen to the lyrics. Don't know it. I have to check it out. Yeah, that's uh, off of Power Slave from the mid-80s. And then my last one is Crawling by Linkin Park. Some of the lyrics in that song are, Crawling in my skin, these wounds, they will not heal. It's a spooky, weird vibe throughout the whole song. Puts your skin on edge. Cool. All right, I'll give you some of my honorable mentions. I kind of grouped things into loose categories of creepiness. (laughs) So just, you know, again, there's a lot of songs with that hidden menace where nothing's out front in the lyrics necessarily, but if you listen, especially with the vocal delivery. So Nirvana's version of Lead Belly's Where Did You Sleep Last Night is very creepy. Good Night Irene, which is a popular folk song that kids, people sing their kids to sleep with, is actually a very dark song, and you can't tell if it's about murder or suicide or both or what's going on. Eric Bibb does a tremendous version of it where he really brings that out. A lot of um, those songs that are things that you sing your sing to your kids yeah, yeah, have my, a lot of dark stuff. You Are My Sunshine, My Only Sunshine is a terrible, dark, horrible song. Like I, People sing that to their kids all the time. Like. Yeah, really. <laughs> there, you know, like like ring around the rosy. Yeah, that's another that's, one. That's about that's about the black plague. Yeah, you know, uh, Honeybee by Tom Petty, which has a great backstory involving Dave Grohl that I encourage you to go check out. Maybe we'll tell that story someday. But Honeybee's a great song. It's a great song, but super creepy. Yes. Um, Every breath you take by the police, which gets played at weddings for God's sake, is about a stalker. Stalker <laughs> song. Um, she's not there by the zombies. Uh, I guess sixties era yeah, song. What's going on there? Somebody's not there anymore, and I don't want to know why. Okay, uh, <laughs> another another version. Excuse me, another genre is the murder ballad. It's very common in country, in yes. particular Folsom Prison Blues, obviously. But yep. uh, there's a really good new version, a new example of this uh, called Kate McCannon by Coulter Wall, who, in my mind, is the second coming of Johnny Cash. Um, amazing song, Ode to Billy Joe by Bobby Gentry. Yeah, uh, it's like what happened to Billy Joe, and why, why were they throwing? To- well, why were they throwing something off or throwing something into the into the gorge? It's not or off the bridge it's not it's not good yeah. <laughs> you have something that's a little more out front uh from eminem with the two songs stan and kim which are yeah both of those are just yeah which are on the marshall marshall mathers lp i think dark right? dark yeah. dark song as far as i can tell he's never referred to any link between them but i sure hear it as two sides of the same story so uh, even though he's even though they don't necessarily match up in well, contact, Stan, Stan's about Stan's, Stan's about, about a, a super fan stalker, a super fan stalker, and Kim's actually about his his ex. I know, but it doesn't mean that the super fan stalker can't have done something similar. I I hear a connection True. there. Um, there are songs about historical or imagined killers or serial killers. Nebraska by Bruce Springsteen, "Bring on the Night" by the Police, which I've referenced in a previous episode. Um, Pink Floyd's "Careful with That Axe, Eugene." Right. Yeah. Uh, 
Morrissey's the last of the famous international playboys. Uh, Boomtown Rats, I Don't Like Mondays, which is about a school shooting. Yep. And, of course, the, um, Psycho Killer by Talking Heads. Which uh, that, also I thought that about. was going to be on your it's list. It's not that creepy, though. It just doesn't, doesn't get... Maybe I'm, too, maybe I'm too jaded. I talked about bands that do creepy really well, and uh, the Cure's album, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, Kiss Me, which is one of my favorite albums, the whole thing is creepy. It's really... just The, the music <laughs> is very creepy. Yeah. Uh, a couple other quick references. Boris the Spider by The Who is just... It's funny. It's campy. It's, it's Halloween-y, but... Total camp, but Halloween, it's good. But it's good, yeah. and I'll, I'll cut some of these out. But uh, I'll end with this one: a song I don't know how well known it is, but a song called "Nothing But Sunshine" by a band called Atmosphere, and I don't know anything else they've done. It's it's very rap. It's kind of Lincoln Parky. It's got okay. rap and, and rock elements, hard rock elements, um, and it's about a very unhappy childhood, and everything's pretty straightforward. But then there's this weird interlude where just before the weird interlude, or the lyrics reference um, that the guy soothes his pain by murdering cattle. And there's this, I don't That's know, 30 weird. second thing where you hear this heavy breathing and it goes, and just, <laughs> and you, it's, just, it's very creepy. <laughs> it's, it's not good. Um, and I just want to say that Johnny Cash's late work, I don't know if he was trying to be creepy. He's very uh, introspective and reflective on his life, but there are some songs like God's Gonna Cut You Down and Ain't No Grave, which give me the shivers, even though I don't know that that's what he's trying to do. God's Gonna Cut You Down is kind of a dark gospel song. Yeah. And that's just, it's, wow, yeah. It's ominous and foreboding. It is, very much so. Very much so. It's, as one of my friends uh, from church would say, it's very Old Testament. Well, it happened again, didn't it? You're on school break for Tucson, but your parents don't want to go away because they're too busy or there's visitors or they got work to do or whatever it is. Well, don't sit around at home watching TikTok on your couch. Come to Rock You and rock with us. Both weeks of the Tucson break, we'll be having bands for ages 8 to 16. You can rock out, learn new songs. At the end of each week, we make videos of the songs you've learned, and you won't be bored all day. Go to www.rock-u.fr to learn more. All right, Rockers, we're back. We're going to do a segment on what Matt and I are calling accidental bass players. And Matt's going to start off and tell us about people who, it, it kind of, when we say accidental bass players, it kind of makes me feel like, oh, I fell on the bass and now I'm playing it. I mean, that's not really how it happens, but um, tell us well, tell us where we're going it's with for this. Bass, it's bass players who never set out to be bass players. I've always found this an interesting little sidebar in rock history. Uh, rock and roll is full of famous bass players who either learned to play the bass just so they could join the band or were forced to play the bass because no one else was going to do it <laughs> and to keep the band going. And yeah. I'm just going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, first of all, I want to say that if you've spent some time in the Rock U room, you might have tried a bass. Uh, maybe you haven't, but you might have tried a bass. And you might have found, first of all, it's very satisfying. It's very good feeling to yeah. play that bass. It sounds good. It feels good. But it's also fairly easy for a beginner. A beginner, beginner bassist can support more advanced musicians fairly easily. It takes a lot of time to become a great bass player, but it doesn't take much time at all. Like, I can teach someone to play bass on most songs in five minutes. And, you know, maybe not as, as well as the as well as a different bass player would have been, but... but um, yeah, but yeah. I mean, it's four strings. You can pluck it with your fingers. You don't need a pick. Although some people play it with a pick, you can pick it up and, and actually, like you said, do it in about five minutes. Unlike a guitar or a piano, the relationships between the strings are all the same. And unlike a guitar or piano, you don't usually play chords, although sometimes in very advanced bass 
stuff. There are chords, but most bass players don't play chords. They they play single notes. So all you got to do is learn where the notes are, and that's it. And in fact, uh, Paul Simonon of the Clash, who's one of the examples of someone who learned to play bass to join the band. They liked the way he looked. He had failed an audition as a singer, <laughs> but they liked the, the attitude he brought. Um, so Joe Strummer painted the painted the names of the notes on the back of his fretboard with nail polish and just called out to him what notes to play uh, during the gigs. And that's how he learned to play bass. And his style actually made The Clash what they are, and he's the one who came up with the name The Clash. Yeah. But getting back to bass, getting back to bass. So, oh, look at that, back to bass. Uh, <laughs> so it's, pre- it's pretty easy. So a lot of times people find themselves either they're guitar players who are familiar with the bass notes because they're the same on the lower four strings of a guitar, or just somebody who wants to figure out an instrument they can play and play right away, they end up finding that role. By the way, just a little footnote, go watch Season 26, Episode 8 of The Simpsons, which is called Covercraft, and it's when the Homer forms a garage band and because he learns <laughs> to play bass. And it kind of whoever wrote the episode knows exactly what I'm talking about because the joke is kind of how easy he had it compared to Lisa, who's a saxophone player and has right. spent so many years mastering her talent. Getting back to this, so... There are a lot of guitarists who found themselves forced into playing bass and stayed there. Paul McCartney is a good example. Lemmy from Motorhead is a good example. John yeah. Deacon from Queen. Geezer Butler from Black Sabbath. Roger Waters of Pink Floyd. There are other famous bass players who, again, as I said, learned to play bass because someone wanted them to join a band or they wanted to join a band and it was the easiest thing to pick up and play. Stu Sutcliffe, who was the bass player before Paul McCartney in the Beatles. Yep. Uh, Sid Vicious of the Sex Pistols. Dee Dee Ramone of the Ramones. <laughs> Sid Vicious never learned how to play that instrument. Well, yeah, but, I mean, he, but he played the right notes. <laughs> but it was the Sex Pistols, so it didn't matter. Yeah, probably the best example besides Paul Simon and his Tina Weymouth of Talking Heads. She was driving the band around to gigs, and they didn't like their bass players, so they just taught her to play bass, and that, the rest is history. Chris Wolstenholme from Muse was actually a drummer, but they already had a drummer, and yeah. they wanted, he wanted to be in the band. They wanted him in the band, so he learned to play bass, and he's an amazing bass player. I've seen it happen here at Rock U as well. History is full of these bass players. I think you want to throw on a few more, but you should just check out some of these, some of these bass players and what they're able to do, and how much they brought to their bands by having a, a by having a fresh approach. No one taught them to play bass, you know, through taking bass lessons since when they were a little kid. They brought a, a new sensibility to the instrument in a very nice way. And sometimes, I should say, sometimes with bass players like McCartney, you get bass players who approach the bass like a guitar, and you get something very new. Yeah, very new. Oh, and John Deacon, a queen, too. I don't know if I mentioned him. but Yeah, yeah. yeah. There were a couple that I, when we were talking about this, and mine aren't exactly accidental, but they got into it in, I think, a fairly unique way. Adam Clayton of U2, they formed the band when they were in school, so it's it's kind of like they had their own rock U. They just made it with one band. Bono said of Clayton's early bass playing, he said, Adam used to pretend he could play bass. <laughs> he came around and started using words like action and fret, and he had us all baffled. He had the only amplifier, so we never argued with him. And we thought he must be a musician because he knows what he's talking about. And then one day we discovered he wasn't playing the right notes at all. So Adam Clayton actually taught himself how to play the bass as the precursors to U2. Uh, The Hype, I think, was one of their names as they were progressing through school. He actually started taking bass lessons in 1995 after U2 finished the Zoo TV tour. About time. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, you're only selling millions of records. Why would you need to take lessons? So even... Randy Rhodes did it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, people that are amazing still take lessons. A recent example of this is Elwood Francis of ZZ Top. 
he was the guitar and bass tech for Billy Gibbons and Dusty Hill, respectively. And when Dusty was was sick in his last illness, he told Billy Gibbons and Frank Beard, he's like, look, you guys need to move on and keep playing, and Elwood needs to play bass. And so that's what they did. You never know. And having seen a few videos... That sounds of, accidental to me. That's close enough. Seeing a few videos of them playing now, Elwood does a great job. So was there something on this podcast that you wanted to talk to us about? Did we get something wrong? Do you not agree with some of the stuff that we said? Then you need to email us at podcast at rock-u.fr. Okay, so we're back and it's time for the one-minute matchup. I love this. Yeah. Let's go. (laughs) All right, man. Should bands carry on after losing a key member? That's our topic for today. Good question. And uh, you go first. Really? Yeah. Did I go first last time? Did you? I think I did. Sorry, I don't mind going first. Fire up that stopwatch when you're ready. I'm ready. All right. Your minute starts now. Okay, so I didn't really approach this from the question of, is is there a right answer? Is there a, a moral imperative to do it or not do it? But what I did was I took a look at some bands and how they'd handled the situation. I found some examples of bands that did carry on after the loss of a key member. The Rolling Stones, after Brian Jones died. Um, Pink Floyd, after Sid Barrett, basically was too unwell to continue. Yeah. ACDC, after uh, Bon Scott. Um, Red Hot Chili Peppers, after their first guitarist, Hillel Slovak. And Fleetwood Mac had multiple lineup changes over the years. So those are all good reasons why bands, those are all good examples of bands that did carry on and had success. But here's the list of bands that did and shouldn't have. The Who, Queen, In Excess, Leonard Skinner, Chicago, Genesis, I'll let you call that one. The Crickets, <laughs> The Wailers without Bob Marley, come on. Black Sabbath without Ozzy Osbourne, Pink Floyd without Roger Waters later. And then bands that chose not to do it at all, just Let's back it in. Led Zeppelin, Joy Division, which became New Order without Ian Curtis, Rush without Neil Peart, uh, Nirvana without Kurt Cobain, Cranberries recorded an album using Dolores O'Rourden's demo vocals, The Doors, Tribe Called Quest, Soundgarden, Van Halen without Eddie, T uh, Rex, Motorhead, Rage Against the Machine without Zach DeLaRocca, Talking Heads, Grateful Dead, and Beastie Boys. It's just let it go. <laughs> All right, you're at a minute. I was over a bit, yeah. You're, Not you're, terrible though. You're at a minute fifteen Not or terrible. something. I'll take it. So, my, my point was that in the, the end, on, thing, on balance, on balance, most bands don't succeed on after the losing Genesis a key thing. Member. Yeah, if you're saying after Peter Gabriel yeah, left, that's what I'm saying. They sold more records after Peter Gabriel but left, but they didn't feel like Genesis to me. Some of those other bands changed uh, their name, like you know, uh, was uh, Joy Division became New Order and. Um, Rage Against the Machine became Audio Slave with Chris Cornell. Well, they put Chris Cornell in and became Audio Slave. Yeah, that's but then, more, I would say that's more of a super group. I, I thing, would agree, and but. yet, and yet, and yet, that that didn't feel like the same Genesis that they had before. Chicago with Peter Cetera, come on. <laughs> yeah, Peter Cetera. Yeah, after after what they had done, and yeah. then Peter Cetera. But didn't didn't Chicago's uh, Terry Kath didn't that's, he die? That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. They went on without him, and uh, it was not the same. After after that, um, the Who <clears throat> without Keith Moon, come on! Yeah, that okay. they were never going to record another record that was going to be as well, good as they were with. Let's, Keith ha- Moon. let's hear your minute. Here we go. All right, you ready? I'm ready. Three, two, one, go. 
All right, I'm going to give you the lawyer answer. <laughs> it depends. Okay, it depends on what the band wants or needs. In the case of a death in the band, I mean, I think it's what the members want that count. So Rush with Neil Peart, both Getty and Alex say that Rush is only Rush when they play with Neil, so they're never going to do that again. Um, ZZ Top, on the other hand, Dusty Hill's wish, like we talked about in the previous segment, was that the band go on with Elwood Francis as the bassist, and they have done really well with that. Um, yet to be seen, Foo Fighters with Taylor Hawkins. I don't know if they're going to get back together and keep going or not, but we'll see. Um, regardless of the reason for leaving, if you've got somebody, and, and this is my personal opinion, if you've got somebody who's a virtuoso that's impossible to replace and keep the sound, the vibe of the band, you just stop. Rush, Zeppelin, the Who probably should have. Um, but if you can replace them and keep the sound of the band the way that it used to be, like ZZ Top has, then go for it. And I did it. And you were right minute. on minute one. That was that was, that was clear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, no, I think you're right. And I think there's a difference between losing someone who can be easily replaced sonically and losing someone who either musically or or emotionally or spiritually carries the yeah, carries the water for the like band. The voice of uh, you know the one the one issue that I was thinking about was you know Steve Perry with Journey when Steve left. That's a good example. And they got the they got the guy that sounds yeah, not the same. Almost like Steve not Perry. The same. I know it's not the same. I went and saw them play. Yeah. Gosh, it has to be like Queen 20, with Adam Lambert. Same deal. It's yeah, it has. It was like twenty years ago. He sounded close, but he was just off enough to where you're like, uh, that's uh, not, not Steve even, Perry. It's not even copying it. It's just embodying the band. I mean, yeah. There's, there, I, I did think of a couple bands that I thought got better. Uh, Pink Floyd and okay. and Red Hot Chili Peppers got better when they lost their key members and replaced them with somebody else. I think David Gilmore is to me. That's what Pink Floyd is. David Gilmore and, and uh, um, Roger Gilmore, Waters. Yeah, yeah. When they when 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 Roger Waters left, he, Floyd was still Floyd to me. Because not to me. I because no David meaning. Gilmore is the you've voice mentioned, of the band. You've mentioned Division Bell a bunch of times. To me, there's no there's no Pink Floyd without Roger Waters. That voice. Division Bell was. And I mean the, the songwriting voice, not the wasn't not the, the album that I was going for. Yeah. It was more. Um, uh, momentary lapse of reason. Okay. That's one of my favorite Pink Floyd yeah, records. Good song. It just doesn't feel like Floyd to me. <laughs> If you want to listen to the songs that we mentioned on this podcast in their entirety, there is a Spotify playlist that you can find in the show notes that has them all. This episode of Extra Credit, the Rock You podcast is brought to you by our good friends at Big Pebble Records. Big Pebble Records is your one-stop shop for music production in Paris. Everything from the creative side to the technical side to the business side. You can check out what they do at www.bigpebblerecords.com. And, of course, you'll hear a lot of Rock U artists on that label. Extra Credit, the Rock U podcast is a production of Rock U. Expertly engineered and recorded by my good friend Seth Hinckley. And our theme music is written and produced by Tom Walters. Rock You is a nonprofit association, Loi 1901, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>